0: Okay, Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, the ushers are going to come down front and make sure you get a Bible from us. Uh, If you get a Bible uh, from us, the page is 656, just makes it real convenient to find 1 Peter. Raise your hands and we'll make sure you get one. Before we get into it, I, I want to pray. Um, I'm always overwhelmed and, and reminded of the fact that God has to take his word and apply it to hearts, right? And, and I've, I've said before, and you've heard me say this, preaching is an absurd endeavor. That Somehow words can make an impact. God decided that. He's a powerful God, and he's with us today. His Holy Spirit, one of his roles is a teacher, and so we're going to ask for his, his uh, work and power in our lives today and for our submissiveness and our ears to hear this passage. So uh, would you join me in prayer, and we'll, uh, we'll ask for his help. Father, thank you for your enduring, faithful, true word. Thank you, God, that you've made it available to us Uh, by grace. God, thank you that um, it is for our growth and for our devotion to you. And so, God, would you take this passage, a very simple three verses, and uh, reveal to us something we didn't know or remind us of something that we have a tendency to forget. God, would you be big in this message? Would you be celebrated in it? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, saw a CBS poll that said four out of five Americans are unhappy with their lives. I don't know how true that is, but I I made some notes. I wonder why they're unhappy. Is it because we have water and electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Or is it because we all live in relative safety, uh, not in fear? Is it because we can go into any grocery store any hour of any day and see more food in a day than some cities see in a year? Is that why we're unhappy? Is it because we have religious freedom to sit in a service like this and hear messages and not have people storm us with guns? Maybe that's why we're unhappy. Maybe it's it's because um, of our, you know, most of us are fairly well off comparatively to the world, and most of us have jobs and and live in safety. Um, Maybe it's because we live on the surface of the sun and we have air conditioning. Maybe that's why we're unhappy. I'm being facetious because you know, right? When you look at it from a particular angle, it makes you feel spoiled, doesn't it? And it confronts our tendency to whine and complain or forget how much we have, right? So in a physical sense, in a practical physical sense, man, Tim, you made me feel guilty already because I, I, I know, we got, we got a lot. I shouldn't complain. And there's a reason why I start with that as a, a kind of an example is because on a spiritual perspective towards the gospel that Jesus has given us by his life, the church has a tendency to take that for granted too. Like just get so comfortable with this unbelievable story that God saves sinners, dead sinners. And so we take it for granted. And, and so um, we're in this passage in First Peter. So let me remind you who he's writing to. Um, the, the text tells us in verse 1 to a scattered church. Um, we know it's a suffering church. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, you see right after Stephen's message, the church ran because the pressure of the world against the Jesus in the church was so great. Right? And so we have this group of people, probably, they're no different than we are. They have probably experienced more tangible pressure for, for being Christians than we have. But they respond to pressure like we do. They respond like, um, I don't want it to be there. It creates doubts and confusion. Sometimes it creates the, the uncertainty about the reality of the gospel in us. And so Peter writes this letter to this suffering scattered church to have them get perspective on what the gospel has done and provided for them and, and how the, the radical changes that take place in our lives. And, and so that's kind of the theme of what we've been in. Again, last week we talked about... Um, to a suffering church, a real struggling persecuted church who might wonder if, it's, if they're gonna make it in the midst of the suffering. Peter gives us those first nine verses and basically, and I kind of gave you this as an outline, it's certain you're gonna make it because your future is not connected to you. It's connected into the faithful permanent, eternal promise of God, right? And he can't go back on his promises. He won't neglect his commitments or his people. And so he gives us nine verses that describe in essence the gospel. And so if you're talking about being a suffering, persecuted, struggling church a little bit, then one of the most tangible ways you can get underneath the suffering well is to remember the huge umbrella of God's gospel for us as Christians. So he says, by the way, you've been loved by God so much so that the change that's happened in you uh, can only be described as that you have new life. It started all over again. You're born again. And this being born again is authored by the will of God before the foundations of the world. And he breathes life into you through the Holy Spirit. Your confession is faith. Jesus bridges the gap between his holiness and your sinfulness. He provides a righteousness not of yourselves, a gift of God so no one can boast. And we have this, now the Bible says in 1 Peter it says we have this inheritance that can't spoil, perish or fade. Now I want you to stop for a second. Picture yourself in suffering. And you're wondering if it's worth it or you're questioning whether it'll last or is it real? And Peter just reminds you this amazing love of God that brings you to life, you're born again. You have an inheritance that can't spoil, can't perish, can't fade. And by the way, God is guarding it. He's standing watch over it to make certain it'll last. And the conclusion of that whole story we saw last week was that you have now a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. In fact, beyond words to express. So I can just, it sounds almost like schizophrenic to have a church that's under suffering who looks at the work of God on their behalf and goes, now I have joy I don't even have words for in the midst of wait, And really that's, that's Peter's argument as he starts this instructions to a church scattered all over the place. Um, So today we're dealing now with 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12, just three simple verses. And and Peter takes a totally different approach with the church, the struggling church today than we looked at last week. So let me give you like a a picture to keep in mind so we understand his angle. The gospel, this wonderful truth that sinners can be saved, is kind of like this precious diamond, right? It's the most valuable thing on the planet. And Peter looks at this diamond from this side and he says, look at what God has done for you. And so one of the ways we're encouraged suffering church is to look at us and how we've received this wonderful grace of God on our behalf. Now he takes that diamond in these next three verses and he spins it to look at another little facet of this wonderful good news. And the way he spins it is is to say this, you've looked at it from your vantage point, now look at it from the prophet's and the angel's vantage point. See what it's like to them. If you really want to understand your blessing and where your source of joy comes from, look at it from their perspective. And I, don't, I know we, um, we do this naturally in life. We probably don't do it spiritually much. Uh, I, I've, uh, have you ever had anybody who has less than you do visit your house? I, I remember when I moved to Arizona, uh, I had one time thought that swimming pools were directly connected to massive wealth, only to find out that we have swimming pools we don't even use here. It's part of life. Um, all of us have moments where we've been around somebody who had more than we did, and we went, wow. you're you're fortunate. You have a lot, right? That's sort of Peter's point here. Like you, you just have lost perspective. You're in it. You're under the weight of it. You're in the gore of suffering and you're wondering if it's worth it. Let me give you another look at this gospel from someone else's vantage point outside of your story. People who would long to be in your position, they see it as a great, wonderful blessing. And if you want to encourage a suffering church, then perspective is how you do it, right? Through, through understanding the gospel. And so that's what these three three verses are about. Look at it this way. Look at the privilege you have. Um, so that's really the essence of what we're talking about today is the privilege of this gospel that we have. Let me, let me read these three verses and we'll start picking it apart and uh, make some conclusions and then we'll worship together. Peter says in verse 10, concerning the salvation, again, it's referring to this wonderful born-again inheritance that can't spoil, perish, or fade that he's mentioned in the first nine verses. That salvation, concerning this, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving you um, not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So in this passage, we've got prophets and angels, the only place in all of Scripture they've been put together in the same context. 95% of what we read here is about the prophets, so let's take a look at them for a little bit. Um, in, a prophet in the Old Testament was someone who spoke for God. These were people in authority that God commanded to go and say, predominantly one message, repent. Because God's people constantly wandered off. And so he would call them back to their senses and to their God with a message of repentance. So they, were, they had two main tasks. They were to speak the word of God and then kind of predict or foretell what would happen in the future. That was, that was their role as, as prophets, okay? And, and Peter's point here is he wants us uh, to know that even, even the prophets who predicted the, the coming of Christ didn't understand what they predicted, Sometimes we get the impression that these folks who are writing down all these wonderful stories about the gospel, the pre-coming of Jesus' gospel, had a better understanding than we do, but they didn't. They didn't understand what they were predicting. They were amazed by it. So if you want to give a flow of these three verses, it's, it's that the prophets predicted the coming of Christ. The, the apostles in the early church taught the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel in that. The angels long to understand the salvation that belongs to us alone. And, and then the conclusion is now we have what the prophets never knew and we can attain what the angels can't. And, and that's the thrust of it. And I've got a one-word outline. So if, you're a, if you like to write down notes but you don't like to write down a lot of notes, I've got a word that is your outline. Ready? Privilege. Privilege. That's his point in this this passage. Peter is overwhelmed by what we have. He wants us to be overwhelmed by what we have. And it makes total sense if Peter's writing to a scattered, suffering church and all the doubts and question marks are arriving because of their circumstances, Peter has the vantage point of these three verses to go, Now, wait, stop, church. Stop. Look at it from this angle. And what will come out of you, again, is how we finish the first nine verses is inexpressible inexpressible glorious joy a satisfaction in him so here's how it breaks down Peter's argument is this our salvation was predicted by the prophets Um, let me go back and read 10 and 11 get in context here concerning the salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Four things I want you to notice that, that are revealed here in these couple of verses is, is the prediction of the coming Savior. Three, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament alone about Jesus. Over 300 prophecies about um, God bridging the gap between sinful man and a holy God. And, and not just general, like, oh, yeah, there's a Savior coming. So much precision in the prophecies, it's absurd to think Jesus isn't the real deal. It's given for hope and confidence and certainty. It's, it's given precisely as God wants, uh, 1,500 years, multiple prophets speaking of Jesus to come. And, and they all land precisely on Christ. Different men, different times, different places. Someone uh, pictured it this way. It's like guys from a whole bunch of different generations taking an arrow and shooting it in the air randomly and having them all land on Christ. I, I'm a Mel Gibson movie guy. I like those movies. Um, I think they reach the core of every male in here, right? A Braveheart's one of them. And there's a scene where, uh, where the king... Uh, his armies, the, the archers shoot these arrows. So just picture all these arrows. Like it clouds the sky kind of arrows that land. But they're all at the same place at the same time shooting at the same target. Now picture those men over 1,500 years. They don't even know what the target is. And they shoot and they all land on Jesus. That's the amazing truth and encouragement behind the prophecies that these, these prophets foretold. I, I, I'm not going to read all 300 to you, Okay maybe just 200, Um, I want you to hear this. And I want you, if you're a a Christian and you struggle with what I call anchored, simple faith, if you're one of those people who can't shut off your mind and you're wrestling with the math of Jesus, I want you to just listen to these as an argument for his certainty and reality. And then also look at it from an angle of a suffering church that sometimes wonders, every time that happens, I think it's me, me. I'm going to pass um, So a, a suffering church wondering if they're going to make it. Now li- listen to these prophecies. Look at the detail. In Isaiah 7, uh, Isaiah says he was going to be born of a virgin. In Micah 5, it says he will be born in a town called Bethlehem. In Genesis chapter 49, he was going to be born in, into the tribe of Judah. In Isaiah 9, he would start his ministry in Galilee. In Isaiah 35, he would do miracles. In in Psalm 41, he would be betrayed by a friend. In in Zechariah chapter 11, he would be betrayed by, by 30 pieces of silver. Not 31, not 25, not ish, 30. In Psalm 35, he would be falsely accused. In Isaiah 53, he'd be wounded and bruised. In Psalm 22, his hands and feet would be pierced. In Isaiah 53, he would be crucified with thieves. In Psalm 34, his bones wouldn't be broken. In Zechariah 12, his side would be pierced. In Isaiah 53, he would be buried in a rich man's grave. And in Psalm 16, he would rise from the dead. It's absurd not to see Jesus here. These aren't generalizations. These aren't sort of, these are specifics and they all land perfectly in Christ. There's only a few. I've I read like 17 of them So struggling, church, when the doubts come, he's real. The prophets know he's real. They spoke of his reality. They didn't understand it, but you do now looking back. You have 20, 20 eyesight looking through the gospel at that story. You know it's Jesus. You know it's it's real, fully complete in him. The other thing we know according to this passage about these prophets is they didn't understand it. They didn't understand what they predicted. In fact, the, the phrase there, they inquired and searched. Um, so I can just a picture um, Isaiah or David writing these prophecies and things like, you know, uh, he will be born of a virgin. Wait, wait a minute, God, that doesn't happen. People aren't born of a virgin. I don't understand. Hey, God, I know you said he's going to die, but I don't get this savior king thing dying how can that rescue anybody and i can just imagine god saying to the prophets don't worry about it you you you, what you can't see now in total i'm i'm doing a great work but but i've got you covered it would make no sense right so um my parents have been visiting uh, for the last week and a half and uh my mom whipped out a jigsaw puzzle the other day now i didn't you know I'm assuming we had one in the house. I've never uh, taken it out of the box. And so on this table goes 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. I I don't do jigsaw puzzles. Um, But she does, and she sat there for hours putting these little pieces together. So picture this. Um, These prophets, over 1,500 years, each of them had a little piece. They they have no idea what the picture is because they don't have the front of the box. They don't know what it's supposed to look like. And they didn't know what pieces are supposed to be there or what pieces are missing. And yet when they put it all together, it paints the picture of salvation through Christ alone. And to this church that Peter writes, he says, listen, folks, you should be more blown away by the preciseness of this absurd thing called prophecy that brings about your hope. This Jesus, everything lines up on him. So if you doubt, Focus focus on the reality of, of Christ's coming and, and the hope that was revealed through the prophets. Um, the other thing that they wrestled with, these prophetic uh, folks, uh, they tried to find out the when, the how, the what, the why of salvation and didn't know. I suppose over time, every prophet hence would look back and maybe have a little bit, little bit more than the one before, but none of them had the whole story. But they all spoke of one particular thing, which is what Peter is reminding us of which is not how you and I would set up a king or a kingdom, or not how we would secure salvation, but was necessary based on sin. And it's the suffering death of a servant for sinners. And I'm going to read to you Isaiah 53 only because it is so clear that it's Jesus. And I think it's exactly what the early church did when Peter reminded them of, of the prophets longing to look into what they saw. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, we have perfect eyesight now, don't we? We've got the Gospels. We've got 2,000 years of confessed history. And we look back at that and go, how could it be anybody else but Jesus? And if you're the early church wondering if your choices for Christ are bigger than your ability to bear or sometimes bring up doubts about the reality of Jesus... Peter brings up the argument of what the prophets confessed and declared way before as evidence that certain as you're standing here, it's real and it's true. You have no doubts that Jesus is the Savior, that he will finish what he started. And I suppose that's what a struggling church needs to hear, the certainty of that whole thing. 500 years before, Isaiah penned those words. In fact, let me give you a little tip. I don't know how much you study your Bible. You should, but let me give you the best tip anybody ever gave you regarding how to study. One rule, look for Jesus. In every passage, Old Testament, New Testament, look for Jesus because this whole thing, 66 books brought together in one, one culmination here is all pointing to Christ. He is the theme, he is the subject, he's the main character, he's the point. redemption. From chapter 3 of Genesis all the way to the end. Jesus isn't God's plan B. He's God's plan A. From the very beginning of time, God knew that man would need a Savior covering, a righteous robe in order to put them together. And Jesus was the conclusion of that. Jesus is the point of our hope. Just like he's the point of the early church's hope. So, these prophets um, would write something down and I don't understand I don't, I don't know what it means. It must be for someone else. And exactly what Peter says here. It was for someone else. It was for us. It, look, at, look at verse uh, 12 again. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but who? You, us. Serving us in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. They were serving us for our benefit, for our encouragement, for our hope, for our joy. These prophets didn't know the whole story. They didn't know how these particulars all equaled one person in time, place, and history, and his name was Jesus, and that he was God's son come in the flesh to give his life a ransom for sinners. They didn't know that. They couldn't get their minds around a suffering servant. They couldn't get their minds around God dying for sinners. It made no sense but we look back and go, it's exactly what had to happen. There is no other way apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right, church? There's no other way. You can't be good enough. You can't work your way out of your own problem. In fact, in fact, you can't even be punished enough to satisfy God. That's why eternity in separation in a place called hell is the consequences for those who reject God's solution to sin. When you reject Jesus the one and only way, truth and life, you spend the rest of all time, I don't even know how to describe that, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and never have your bill paid. Because the sin you've committed against the holy standard of God is a permanent mark. It can't be removed except by the blood of Jesus for those who confess him as Lord and Savior. And that is what we call childlike absurdity. There's got to be more to it, right? I got to do something. I gotta, I gotta atone for this stuff. I gotta fix this stuff. In fact, Jesus' death even covers our tendency to try to atone, which is also sin, because it says that his righteous standards are attainable and they're not that tall, or my ability is better than it is, right? It's a confusion. And so Jesus, his perfect work, satisfies it. And that brings to a suffering, struggling, scattered church encouragement, hope. And joy, unspeakable, full of glory. That's Peter's thought here. And so the conclusion, like I told you, that one word outline is we have such a privilege. We have such a privilege. There's a second aspect to the salvation that Peter talks about. And it's the salvation preached by the apostles in in verse 12. It says that these things have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the prophets predicted Christ, it came true in Jesus. The disciples preach Jesus' uh, life and death and resurrection. Some 2,000 years later, here we are still talking about the hope of man in Christ, right? We experience the salvation of our souls through Jesus the same way all men have always done that. And I, I look at the contrast compared to, to that generation to now and go, gosh, how did that happen? Like, how, how does it really happen that a ragtag group of fearful men Start talking about a message of hope in Christ that now is still alive and blossoming in 2012. Very, very simple, faithful proclamation preached in power. You understand? Uh, we have so much today. In the back, when you guys were worshiping, there's a there's a camera that shoots on a video screen back there, and and when I'm praying for the message, I'm looking at the video screen, and I can see the worship leaders. They didn't have that in 80 whatever. They don't have these killer lights that dim every once in a while. (laughs) They don't have a band, and and they don't have comfy seats, and they didn't have air conditioning in Arizona. They didn't have nothing. You know what they had? Faithful proclamation of Jesus in power. And everything we do, church, you want to measure it, church, just measure its faithfulness to proclaim the forever eternal Jesus Savior of the world. And then there's this wonderful thing, and that's why I love preaching. I love preaching not because I'm a great preacher, because I'm absolutely certain that God takes preaching and penetrates hearts. It's his mechanism. When Paul is talking to young Timothy, he says, Timothy, preach the word. Just preach the word, because I show up in preaching, and I, and I precisely deal with people's hearts in it. So I look at preachers and go, well, they, they may be more winsome than others. They might be more interesting than others, but God is the preacher in messages, right? The Holy Spirit shows up and he reveals truth to us. That's his role. And so I'm totally confident, totally confident in God's longing to communicate the forever love of of God in Christ to us. And so we just have to be faithful in teaching it and preaching it and the power of God will show up. That's how they did it then. And that's how we do it now. We have some luxuries, don't we? Uh, And sometimes we take the whole big story for granted, but Peter uses it as, a, as another encouragement to the suffering church. Hey man, the prophets wanted to see this stuff and they were predicting stuff for you. They didn't understand and it at all. You now look at it and you go, how did I forget how great it was for us? And, and the apostles faithfully preached this word in the power of the Holy Spirit and we get it and we understand it. And so this early church was scattered It was fresh on their minds what Peter said in the messages, what John had done. Fresh on their minds the story of Christ. Some have witnessed it. And so Peter uses it to encourage them. There's one last argument that, that Peter makes to to encourage the church to remember from this other vantage point, this wonderful diamond of gospel. Um, it was studied by the angels. It's just a little bit of verse 12, but it has so much in it. It says this. Again, he's talking about the, the gospel preached. Um, These things have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The uh, things into which angels long to look things into which angels long to, to look. It, there's a Greek word here that has kind of one idea but two angles at the idea. It can be used if someone standing in the back of a circle to a major event who quite, can't quite see what's going on, and so they get on their tippy toes and they strain to look around heads to see what's going on. That's one idea. The other idea is to stoop down and get really close to it, to get on your hands and knees, to get close to that truth. And and Peter says angels are on their tippy toes or stooping down to see there's a wonderful, amazing grace of God through Jesus Christ for sinners. They don't get it. So it's the same word used of Peter and John when they ran to the empty tomb to see where Jesus was and all the, the, the wrappings of his body, and, and they kind of stoop because they were totally into it. Angels are into what God has done for us. We don't think like that at all, do we? Like if I had some magic door back here and I had a title over the door and it said, a view into heaven, we'd all line up and what the heck's going on in there? We'd be so into that side of the story. The angels aren't interested in that as much as they are in this. The Bible nowhere says that we're supposed to look into the angelic realm at all. But this is mind-blowing. The angels are blown away at salvation. So if you're a suffering, struggling church, if you're paying for your faith by the world's you know pushing back on you, if, if for you to have ethics and, and a moral character in the way you do business and you lose money for it, if you if you choose to be pure before you get married, if you whatever pick you want on your decisions to live for Christ, and the world looks at you and says, You're absurd, you're weird, you don't fit, whatever. One of the perspectives that Peter offers to us to remain hopeful. And strong and enduring is to look at the, the angle of how those outside of the recipients of the gospel see it. You understand? It's like I, I've done short-term mission projects before. I've gone down to Mexico with a bunch of students, and we, in essence, build a tool shed to replace their cardboard house. And every time we come back from something like that, we go, wow, we've got so much. And that's exactly what Peter's doing here. Um, to get a view from these angels so why would it be so amazing to them real simple angels aren't saved salvation isn't for them it's for us now there are elect angels and there are non-elect angels there are good and bad angels there are obedient and disobedient angels but there are no saved angels it's for us alone Only we can can be redeemed. Out of all, think about this, church. Think about it. Out of all of God's creation of all time in the universe that God's created, we are the only recipients of His unmerited favor. Period. Do you consider that a privilege? I'm going to wait for somebody to respond to that. Yeah. Think about it. Angels are looking over the shoulder. How did that happen? Like what, what, what's going on there that God would leave heaven and take on flesh and give his life a ransom for sinners and they reject him and they're at war with him and he still loves them and he secures it in his, in his character. How does that happen? How does he deliver them from that bondage of sin and death to a future forever, restored in relationship with God? We don't get that. We don't understand grace. We don't get salvation. We're not redeemed. Angels have no idea what's going on. So we're privileged. Get the outline? We're privileged. They don't know what it is to be forgiven. They don't know what it is to be born again. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not freed from sin. We're so much more privileged than they are. We've showed these God stories every once in a while. Last week we showed Chuck Holmes, and it's a great kind of big picture of all of our stories, right? From a felon to a follower. And you might never have spent any time in prison, but we have, like, in topic, right? The Bible says we're all slaved in our, in our sin. And, and Jesus frees slaves from sin. And he makes a new people, a people dearly loved and cherished by God. Uh, 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 he makes for himself an inheritance that will never, ever tarnish. Nobody in all creation gets that but us. And it's not because you're so special or I'm so special. It's because God just decided in his benevolence to give it to us. And so the angels look at it and go, I'm blown away at this. Imagine an angel in heaven peering down here. We always get the other perspective like, oh, it'd be great to just poke around up there and see what's going on. It's going to be great in heaven. It's great here. It's great here in Jesus. Amen? That's what he's trying to say. We're so much more privileged than they are. So... I think we need to confess something, church. I think corporately, I think we need to confess the fact that we take for granted how privileged we are. I think that's part of our problem when we whine and complain and we think the pressure's too much or the suffering's too great or God doesn't understand or I deserve better. I think we lose our perspective and according to the scripture, according to Peter, according to his writings to this early church and to us, he's saying, turn the diamond. Salvation isn't just about tomorrow you spending forever with Jesus in a place called heaven. Salvation is yours today. You've been a redeemed, saved rescued people now right now so whatever you're enduring is outside of that wonderful story of which god is fully in control of so just look at it look at it how the prophets look at it look at how the angels look at it they're more blown away by it than you are suffering church and so that's convicting it is to me so i want you to leave with a couple of things I want you to remember that Jesus is the meaning of history. Man, it couldn't be, uh, it couldn't be more helpful to hear that than, than now in um, September of 2012. History is not about nations, and it's not about the November election. It's not about America, and it's not about our happiness, and it's not about how much money we have in our retirement account. History is about Jesus. This whole thing is about him revealing his greatness and, and getting glory from it and redeeming for himself people. We get confused sometimes and think it's really about this American dream. Now, I'm all for it. I would vote yes. If someone, if someone put on the ballot, be happy and, and die well, I'd vote for that. But the reality is I don't know how it's all going to go. I know people are freaking out, but here's all I know to do, right? The Bible says um, to him who knows what to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. So you have a responsibility to vote in November, clearly what God has called you to vote for. But as a Christian, the bigger picture is to be happy in the Lord and trust his control over that story. God is the one who installs kings. Do you understand? You vote, God puts in kings. And we can rest in that church no matter how it turns out. We can do well in that. We can be encouraged with an inexpressible, glorious joy because our reality is more certain than that one. Would you agree? So Jesus is the meaning of history. Here's the second thing I want you to leave with. Salvation is the purpose of history. This whole book, the first three chapters describe the failure of man. The rest of the book is all about God's redemption of man. This whole thing is about salvation. This this picture of God making people is all about him redeeming people. And... Sometimes we as a church narrow our focus of redemption to this salvation in the future, um, and that is a part of it. But God is in the, in the position of restoring all things. When Jesus said, pray this way, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God is about lining those two things up. How does it go in heaven for God? That's what God's restoring here. In time, when Jesus returns, this whole thing will be made right. Right? He's about restoring all things, all the fallenness, all the brokenness, all the sickness, all the perpetual failures. Not just getting sinners out of earth into heaven, but redeeming all the messed up things that rebelled against his authority and sovereignty, right? So this whole story, don't be confused, church. Be encouraged. I don't care what you're going through, what suffering or persecution or failures or hurts you're going through, trials. You know this story ends with salvation. God's salvation, redemption for everything. Everything. So when you're worn out because of sickness, it's no big thing to God, he's dealing with it. When you're worn out by people not understanding you or dealing you an unfair deal because you name Christ, don't worry about it, God keeps good records. This whole thing is about God making things right, making things new, he's on a rescue mission. And then one last thing, and I've said it 15 times, we're so privileged, we're the most blessed people ever. We know what the prophets don't know, and we have what the angels can't have. That was That's Peter's point here. So now I want you to stop and back up. Back up and look at your suffering now. Do you see why Peter takes us through the perspective of this different facet of gospel? So that we can see how fortunate we are? Because sometimes, if not already, you will go through trials. And you'll wonder, possibly, is it worth it? You possibly will wonder uh, if you will make it. You might even struggle with doubts and wonder if it's real. You may start to grumble and complain and whine and do poorly under suffering. Peter says, let me help you out a little bit. You will make it. This is verse 1 through 9. You will make it. God is certain. It's anchored in him. You will make it Two. If you struggle with if it's worth it, if it's real, well, then let's see. What do the prophets and angels say about that? And that helps us, church. It really helps us. Sometimes we're so close to our story, we don't see the big story. So let's pray right now and ask for God to reveal to us the big story, to let it bring hope, not anchored to circumstances, but hope anchored to the purposes and the character of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for the wonderful story of gracious sinners for your salvation to us. And we confess, God, sometimes we're so close to uh, the suffering or the failure or the hurts or what the world can't deliver that we, uh, we struggle with doubts. We struggle with joy. God now looking at it from another perspective, from those who don't receive or haven't understood what we have, and they are, are filled with that kind of joy and marvel at the work of God. I pray, God, that we would leave, leave here in spite of our story, marveling at your finished work in Jesus. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.